0: Hey everyone, welcome back to Southern Fried Storytime. Today we're going to talk about The Little Mermaid, Part 2. In Disney's Little Mermaid, Eric just managed to save his good boy Max, but then his leg got caught in a splintering plank on deck of his burning ship. So, you know, happy birthday to you. Seriously, that is a rough birthday, (laughs) guys. That's like the worst birthday I've ever heard of. Um, If this wasn't a cartoon, that wood would be shredding his leg right up through whatever those pants are made of. It looks like denim, but denim wasn't invented yet, so I I have no idea. And uh, denim would honestly be a better choice than whatever it is, because denim's a little tougher. That splintered, hot, cracked wood would be tearing into his skin. But it's a cartoon, so it's not. But still... Dude, I mean, let's get stuck with your leg being sliced apart on a burning ship. It's not how I've ever wanted to spend my birthday. Maybe I'm weird, but I really doubt it. I mean, I'm sure I'm weird, but I really doubt that this is an example of me being weird. Um, So the flames in the ship are headed towards what is left of the boxes of fireworks and the powder keg storage of the ship. You know, they got to protect themselves against pirates. We heard what happened to Ariel's mom. Eric pulls urgently at his pinned leg. The fire reaches the powder stores and fireworks, and what's left of the ruined birthday cruise literally goes up in flames and smoke. Ariel searches desperately for Eric, even though things look pretty bad. Stuff just blew up, you know, so, I mean, we're not holding our breath either. But she finds him slipping off from a drifting board and into the water. She pulls him to the surface before dragging him to shore. She's reassured when she sees that he's breathing, so... Unlike the books in Disney's Mermaid, mermaids are at least aware that people do need to do that. Anderson's mermaids seem a little foggy on the topic. Um, And she, of course, falls in love with him instantly, singing a reprise of her I Want song, Part of Your World. He can only see her silhouette with the sun in his eyes, but he does get a good sample of her voice before Max and Grimsby find him scaring off the mermaid. Max tries to follow her into the water while Grim fusses over Eric and helps him to his feet. But in the end, he decides his boy is more important than Fish Girl and comes back to Eric. In Anderson's tale, the mermaid is finally 15, so she's allowed to go to the surface. 15 in this version sounds young. I mean, honestly, 16 in Disney's version sounds young, too. But um, at the time it was written girls were married as young as 12, and even today you can get married at 16 in Oregon and as young as 11 in Alaska. Now, most states, anything below 18, you, you need to have, like, like, parents' permission and, like, a court order. I know in Alaska, the age 11 thing, you have to have, like, a court order situation, but what is going on in Alaska? I don't know. I'm sure I don't know. I'm sure I don't want to know. Kids 11 is too young for sure. But, um, yeah, most states here, even in the U S with parents permission and or a court order, you can get married at 16. Uh, the time that Anderson wrote the little mermaid again, 12 and up was pretty much universal. So about the time you're reaching physical, uh, reproductive maturity, you could say is about the same time that women, gosh, they're not women, girls were allowed to get married then. So, 15 was solidly middle of the road for an age to get married back when Anderson wrote the story. That'd be like if we said 23 today, you know, with 18 being the equivalent of the 12-year-old and 28 being the equivalent of 18. I don't know. But, yeah, getting married earlier was not only socially permissible at the time we see this in the bible too where a boy's bar mitzvah is when he's 12 that's when he's supposed to be a man that's when you would take on household responsibilities a lot more was expected of you at a younger age at that time because you didn't live nearly as long so you needed to start like continuing the human race as soon as possible Back in those days where something like a broken arm was a death sentence, you know. So it was kind of a bigger deal back then to get married early in the sense that they wanted you to. Whereas these days it's a big deal to get married early because they don't want you to. It's kind of an interesting turnaround. But also you have to remember too that while getting married seems like a crazy big decision for a 12, 13, 14, 15 year old to make. You have to remember. Usually, the the child in question was not the one making this decision at all. Uh, marriages were selected and kind of curated by the parents, not only to establish financial benefit for the overall family, but to try and make sure that the you know the people in question were suited to each other. Which often, when you're that age, you're so emotional that other people do know you a little better than yourself. So I can see. Where, since these decisions were not being made by the 15-year-olds, it might have been more likely to turn out at the time. Anyway, 15 would have been considered a very suitable age at the time when Anderson wrote the story. As creepy and weird as that sounds to us. At 15, the Little Mermaid sees her very first sunset. She sees a ship upon which a young prince is celebrating. She hears... Now, if it's his birthday, like it is in the Little mermaid movie that means that they have the same birthday so that's kind of kind of cool kind of like that that's kind of fun i don't know though it doesn't say in the book what there's what the prince is celebrating just that he's celebrating so it could be almost anything she hears human music and sees fireworks like in the movie and like in the movie bad weather follows mermaids she sees the prince sink beneath the debris as she, you know, brought a storm that sunk his ship as well. I think in both Ariel's and the Little Mermaid's case, this is probably accidental because both of them seem to have been, like, enjoying themselves just, just sitting there. <laughs> the storm just kind of followed them. But it does kind of tie in that notion that mermaids are tied to terrible weather. Maybe only Triton's the one who can control whether or not He brings bad weather or good. Maybe all of the other mermaids, because they don't have the trident, just bring bad weather no matter what. There's no good weather if you are a fish girl. Um, But like in the movie, we see her rescue him and drag him to the beach near a massive abbey. She kisses his face gently until bells begin to ring in the abbey and a group of girls walks out onto the white sand. The Little Mermaid darts away but watches from afar as the prince is discovered and taken to safety. Broken hearted that he would never know she saved him, the Little Mermaid dives down deep back to her father's castle. Ariel, on the other hand, is in love and all smiles. Sebastian, on the other, other hand, is not smiling. Ariel's not exactly being stoic about the whole thing and wants to go see Eric again. While Sebastian puts out an amazing sales pitch for living under the sea, Flounder sneaks Ariel to a grotto where he has somehow carried the statue of Eric that fell off the sinking ship. Now, why wasn't that in the movie? I'd like to see how that happened. How does this chubby little tiny fish carry what has to be, oh my gosh, it's a big statue and it's made of stone. So let's say actual real Eric weighs 150 to 180 pounds somewhere that size made out of rock is going to be way too heavy for this little bitty fish i would love to know because he's not even breaking a sweat i don't know if fish actually sweat i really doubt it but the point is this doesn't seem to have been like a difficult ordeal for flounder and yet I want to know how it happened. How? Because he couldn't, like, recruit a bunch of other fish. This grotto is a secret. They're break. He's breaking the law by saving this statue. So how did this happen? I want to know how the statue got into the grotto. How did Tiny Little Flounder move the rock that blocks the door to the grotto and pull the statue in there before the rock rolled back shut? It's all a big mystery to me. And it maybe I'm overthinking it. I'm sure we're not supposed to think about it. But... I think about it. (laughs) That's a little fish. How did he do all this? It's just crazy. I mean, really, it's amazing enough that Ariel can roll away that rock in front of her grotto, let alone this tiny little fish. I don't know. I just don't know. But I would have loved if they had included that part in the movie. Sebastian is summoned to see King Triton to report to him all the spying he's been doing on Ariel. Stressed to the brink, Sebastian, of course, spills all the beans because, again, he doesn't want to be Triton's post-workout protein snack. And so he spills all those beans on Ariel, and Triton is mad. He sees all of Ariel's things and comes to face to face with the fact that rather than setting a good example for her people, his daughter, the princess of the realm, who's supposed to be kind of an ideal for people to live up to, has been making a fool of him, flouting every merfolk law and putting her friends and herself in danger. Triton explodes. We've already established that he pretty much only communicates with Ariel by shouting, but at this point, he destroys everything she has spent years collecting. All of her daydreams, all of her happy imaginings are destroyed in this violent blast of magical energy. He says that this is the only way to get through to her, but I personally fail to see what part of screaming and destruction is meant to be persuasive. You know, maybe if he had the quiet, shy, submissive daughter that we see in Anderson's Mermaid, this would, I mean, it would turn him into an object of fear and avoidance rather than a real father-daughter relationship, but it would work. She wouldn't keep disobeying him. Whereas for a feisty red-headed thing like Ariel, it's only going to make things worse. And we in the audience know that with teenage girls, it's going to go one of those two ways. Either she's going to be afraid of him and fearful of him, but submissive forever, or she's going to push back just as hard. And Ariel, she knew there was no real future with Eric. Even even at her age, she knows that. The statue and the grotto were just kind of her happy daydreams. and. Even she knew there was nothing that was going to come of it. But by dad escalating things, a feisty, again, redheaded, spicy thing like Ariel can't resist going one step further. She's a 16-year-old girl. Like I said, it was going to go one of two directions with that particular age group. Seeing his heartbroken daughter, Triton realizes that he may have gone too far, but for some reason the idea of apologizing and actually talking to her without screaming at her never occurs to him. Kind of wonder if this is how things go with the rest of his citizens, or or if this is just special treatment for his daughters. Oh, I'm nice nice to my uh, citizens. The abuse is just for my kids. I don't know. I don't know, he, he's kind of rough on Sebastian, too. I don't think we see him scream at him quite as much, but Sebastian also submits a little more. So maybe tantrums are his childish way of getting what he wants. I don't know. It's not healthy, whatever it is. He needs he needs a counselor, but I don't know. A counselor would probably be scared to treat the king and be honest about issues he needs to talk about. Um, anyway, he doesn't apologize to her at all, but to be fair to him, Neither does Ariel. We never see either of them apologize after their their shouting matches. And they're both kind of right and they're both kind of wrong. So they both make a point, but they both need to apologize for disrespecting the other. And we never see that from either of them. We get an I love you closer to the end of the story, but we never get an I'm sorry. And those I'm sorry's are more important than these guys are letting on. So I don't know. I think... I think again Disney here is doing what Anderson says where you you put in some stuff for the kids but you put in some stuff for the adults as the kid you 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 relate to Ariel you know you you feel bad that she's kind of being smothered and suppressed and all that that she's a feisty free spirit but as an adult you see that things a little more from Triton's perspective as well, that Ariel's not just some defiant little girl. She's the princess of the realm. She's the example for the rest of the people. And if she can flout her daddy's laws right under his nose, what can everybody else get away with when they're not living right you know in the same building as the guards? So I kind of see where he's coming from. I just think he reacted to it very, very badly. His, he basically is... His method of communication is, You better do what I say! When really, maybe talk to her about why she needs to do as he says. It's not, she's not a baby. You don't need to scare her into submission. Talk to her. She's old enough to understand that she's becoming a danger for everyone else. I don't know. He, instead of bridging the gap between them and having a real talk with her rather than screaming at her, Triton turns his back on his daughter and leaves her alone. A move that we only see him regret later when it's too late. And again, they both need to apologize. It's not just him. It it comes off as him because it's supposed to. You know, we're supposed to see the movie from Ariel's perspective. And to be honest, when he's blowing up her grotto, the lighting on him, he looks pretty scary. It's it's meant to be an intimidating scene. You're meant to feel for her. But they're really both wrong. And they, I don't know, they, they need to talk it out rather than scream it out. I'm not a big fan of people who think that screaming is talking and that's, I think that's a lot of what goes on wrong between these two. I think if they both kind of put their tone aside, her her sassy tone and him his screamy tone, and they just actually talk to each other like an adult and an almost adult, then, I mean, she's going to make dumb choices. She's 16, but he's supposed to be the adult in the situation, and instead he just wants to scare her into submission. That's a Halloween tactic, sir. That's not a relationship skill. I don't know. They're both... We see him regret it. We never see any regret from her. And that kind of bothers me. So while I think part of me holds him more responsible because he's the adult in the situation. He should talk to her and reason with her instead of screaming at her. But at the same time, he shows remorse. Even if he doesn't say he's sorry, he at least looks sorry a couple of times. Ariel (laughs) doesn't even care. She is convinced from beginning to end that she's absolutely right in this story. And she's but she's not. She, she's, like I said last episode, she's selfish and she's kind of a brat. So I guess part of me feels pretty bad for Triton in this situation because at least you can tell that he's like, ooh, I, I I shouldn't have done that. That wasn't very nice. You know, I don't think he thinks about the fact that this is just going to make her more defiant, which Ariel being Ariel, it's going to make her more defiant. But I think he feels bad for losing his temper in a very childish way rather than talking to her. But part of what makes me sympathize with that, even though he did that is because he, at least you see a couple points where he regrets it. Ariel regrets nothing. And she's very impulsive <laughs> It bothers me. You need to think before you act just as much as you need to. Th- she needs to think before she acts. He needs to think before he speaks. And, those two issues between the two of them, I think, are what causes a lot of the escalation we see in this next scene or two. Her sorrow and tears give way to resentment and rage as Flotsam and Jetsam make their way into her grotto, or what's left of it. I mean, it's it's that Tritonist powerful. He's pretty much blown everything up. It's amazing, really, that no debris landed on them or anything, now that I think about it. Personal note. As we see Flotsam and Jetsam enter the singing. I mean, we've seen them a little bit before, but I'm personally deeply terrified of eels. They look angry all the time. And angry people, as you may have guessed from my rant about Triton, angry people freak me out. I don't like to be around angry people. And eels, both animated eels and real eels, look like they're just mad all the time. I don't know if they are. I don't know what they're actually like, but they look terrifying. They look angry all the time. And th- if that's not scary enough, as I grew up, I found out eels have a mouth inside their mouth. So they can bite you twice with one chomp because there's there's a whole separate jaw inside their mouth. Google it. It's terrifying. It's awful. I was a huge fan of this movie as a little kid. It's my mom will tell you. I've watched it all the time. I could probably recite all the lines for you. It was my favorite when I was little. It came out when I was real Real little, like two. And I wonder sometimes if my discomfort with eels may have started with this movie because they are the bad guys and they look like they're angry all the time. And I thought that was just anthropomorphizing it until when I got a little older and I looked at up eels and went, nope, Disney didn't actually stray that far. They really do look that grumpy all the time. And just the more you learn about them, it gets so much worse. I promise. Sorry. Side rant over. I don't like eels. They freak me out. And it may have started with The Little Mermaid. I don't know. I'm not scared of octopuses. So I don't know. Anyway, they persuade the emotional teenager to take a more proactive approach to punishing her father. In Anderson's book, The Little Mermaid was sorrowful and listless, which in my experience, when you're a teenager in love, it tends to be much more emo like this. You're like, you're, you're so dramatic. Oh, I'm in love with someone who's not in love with me. And oh, it's so sad. And so, I don't know. I find Anderson's description fits the, ton, you know, the age of the character a little more. I think when you're an adult, love makes you more happy and cheery. cheery. At least it does for me. Reciprocated love makes you very, very happy. One-sided love, I think Anderson's description is a lot more accurate. She's not caring for her flowers. She's not enjoying everything that used to please her. The princess finally gets some information through the grapevine about where the prince's castle is, and she begins to spend all of her time watching and stalking him, because that's creepy. She heard local people talk about how good and kind he was, and she was glad that she had saved such a good person. Still, the more she saw of the human life, the more she began to covet it. Their world seemed so large and vast, and she always wanted to know more. She would often ask her grandmother about the world outside of the scene. So here we see, unlike Ariel, who is specifically and completely enraptured with Eric, Anderson's mermaid yeah she thinks the prince is cute and everything but she's more enamored with the human world as a whole than she is specifically with the prince she's interested in the mountains and the castles and the houses and everything like that so the bigger the world seems to her the more she sees of it the more she wants to and um yeah, so it's it's very different there. And then, of course, Granny's about to drop a bomb on her that is going to be the clincher that makes her want to become part of our world. She found out that humans have much, much shorter lives than the 300 years that mermaids have, but they have immortal souls that go on forever after they pass away, as opposed to merfolk who dissolve into sea foam. Grandmother says that they can surface above the water Oh, that as the mermaids can surface above the water, the immortal souls of humans can surface into heaven, a paradise above the clouds. How Grandmother knows this, I have no idea. This is basically this book's equivalent to me wondering about Flounder in the movie. But the Little Mermaid says that she would give up all her hundreds of years to be a human for one day if it meant she got to have an immortal soul and see the world beyond the stars. So we've seen her coveting wanting to explore the human world. She's a little interested in the prince, but this immortal soul business, this clinches it. She wants one of those for sure. And as someone who has one of those, I got to admit, if I didn't have one, I'd probably want it pretty bad. She asks her grandmother if there was anything she could do to have an immortal soul. The grandmother replies that a man would need to love her more than his family and himself. If he did that and made her his wife, she would get a bit of his soul, binding them together so that she would also get to heaven when she died. He would give her a soul and would keep his own as well. But this will never happen because their fish's tail is hideously ugly to humans. Little Mermaid wants that human soul at any cost. And we'll see in our next episode just how far she's willing to go to get an immortal soul.